you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. In the daily Bible reading, we have been working our way through the book of Matthew. And I believe today would actually be Matthew 26. And so by Tuesday, you'll have finished if you're following along with us. And a couple weeks ago when I was up here, I got to introduce the book and uh, try to tease out a few of the threads and the main themes that Matthew is getting at in his account of Jesus's life. And what I want to do this morning is see if he ties them up, see if he end, how he ends his book, if Jesus truly is these things that he had started to say in the beginning. If you remember back in uh, chapters one through four-ish, Uh, Matthew makes three statements about who Jesus is, and he wants to show that that these statements are true about Jesus. And these statements all lead to a choice on whether or not you will accept a carpenter from Nazareth as the long-awaited Messiah, the long-prophesied Messiah, the Savior that way back in Genesis 3 was promised to crush the head of the snake and to establish God's glorious kingdom, the kingdom his people have been waiting for. And Matthew says that this carpenter from Nazareth, Nazareth, this Jesus, is the royal king from the line of David. He's the new and better Moses, which was the best prophet of God that the people ever had, and that he is the fulfillment of the promise of Emmanuel, that God would come to be with his people. In Matthew 1 through 4, Matthew starts the argument that these things are true about Jesus. And in Matthew 26, chapter 27, and chapter 28, I think, think we'll see that he brings this all together and leaves us with a question. And the question is, what will we do with this Jesus? If it's true that he's the new and better Moses, the final prophet of God that has the authority to speak for God, if it's true that he's the royal and rightful king over the kingdom, and if it's true even that he is God with us, What will we do with this Jesus? In Matthew 26, we're just going to look at a couple of passages in each chapter, a little bit of an overview here. And as you read through and as you make your notes, um, hopefully this can give you uh, helpful insight into what Matthew has been doing in this entire, entire gospel. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, We're going to start in verse 20, and then we're going to skip down to verse 26. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood 
of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You're familiar with the story, I'm sure. And something that Jesus says in this account, in Matthew's account, is really important to focus on and to key in on if we're tracing who Jesus really is. And one thing that Matthew says is Jesus is the new Moses. Moses, if you remember in the history of the Israelites, was one figure, there was a couple of others, one figure who spoke for and, in, and mediated and brought a covenant between God and his people. And Jesus says something very interesting that maybe we might pass over, but if you were there that night, you would key into. And he says in verse 28, my blood and my body, this is the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. If you were a good Israelite back in that day and in that room with Jesus that night, you would instantly think of an Old Testament passage that has been long awaited for to come true. And that's Jeremiah 31. If you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Last time I was up here, we looked at several Old Testament passages that Matthew points out Jesus fulfilling. And this is another one of those that would have been in the minds of those there that night, would have been in the minds of the people who were listening to Jesus, who were following Jesus closely or from afar, who were hearing him say all these things about a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, it says this. Now, this is during the time when Israel is being taken captive to Babylon, when everything has come crumbling down. The nation of Israel has decayed. The kingdom has rotted out. And now Babylon has come and taken them away. And Jeremiah is a prophet who has been telling that these things would happen and has also been sharing the words of the Lord about what's to come after, that this is not, in fact, the end. And he says something that is um, fairly radical here in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. He's saying, I'm doing, going to do something new, something different than what you have always known from the days of Moses till now. I'm making something new. Though I was husband to them, says the Lord, though I kept my part of our covenant, the house of Israel, the people of my people continually broke it. So I'm going to do something different. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. You're going to want to notice three 
distinct things about this new covenant. The first, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The second, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And the third thing, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now in this covenant, not everything he's saying is brand new. In fact, God has been all about these things before with the people of Israel. But his point, and Jesus' point that night, is that a new covenant is being instituted, a new way, a better way, the only way that we can relate to God is in the new covenant. And Jesus says, this is going to come through me. Now look at, look at all of this imagery together. First of all, let's just think about these three parts of this covenant real quick and see if Jesus, what we know about Jesus on this side of the cross, if he fulfills these things. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God. There's a, going to be a shift. So before this, with the law of Moses and the covenant of Moses, the law was written down on the tablets, the law was written down on the scrolls, and the law was an external book of rules and regulations in order to relate to God, in order to find a connection with him. Paul talks about it in Galatians, right? It was a school teacher. It was a way to show you where you stood, what you could do, what you couldn't do, what you should do, and what you shouldn't do. And it was very much kept outwardly. Not totally, but very much kept outwardly. Think back to Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the religious leaders all the time. All the time, he points out how all that they, uh, the only thing they care about is what it looks like they're doing for God. And he comes back over and over and over again to the first part of the new covenant, which is that God wants your heart. He wants the inside of you, not just the outside. He wants, how does Jesus put it, the overflow of your heart, what comes from your heart, that's what makes you pure or not. And what you do with your external is dictated by what you believe from your internal. And what God is saying, there's coming a day in my new covenant when no longer is the external law going to hang over your head, but the internal law is going to be spring forth from your hearts. And I will be their God. This is an interesting thing that keeps coming up in this new covenant. I will be their God. In fact, it goes right into the next aspect. That not only will God's law become internal and that our relationship and how we relate to him, we put the focus on our inward hearts, but we also get to have a personal relationship with God. It's hard for us to imagine this because we've never grown up thinking this way because we're on this side of the cross. But ancient Israelites do not relate to God 
The average ancient Israelite did not relate to God the same way you and I do. They did not have much, if any, concept of an individual personal relationship with God. That was reserved for someone like Moses. That was reserved for someone like David. That was reserved for someone like Abraham or Aaron or the priests. Those who were allowed to go in to where God was. You could not just go and have access to God. Someone had to go for you and it had to be the right someone and they had to do the right things even to enter. And if somehow you got a chance to have an audience with Moses or David or someone like that, the last thing you're thinking is, David, can you tell me what God thinks about this? This is revolutionary, and this is just not how they thought. But what God is saying is, I want you to think this way. I want you to know that uh, no more does, do you have to go to someone else to find out about me. No more do you have to go to someone else to be your mediator. You can come right to me yourself. You don't have to hear someone else say, here, how, here's how you know the Lord. I'll come to you directly. For they shall know me from the least, the ones who never had a chance of getting anywhere within the closest vicinity of God that there was in the tabernacle or the temple, to the greatest, the guys like Moses and David and Abraham and Jacob, anyone in that range is welcome to come into the Holy of Holies with God. Again, that would have been... They had no way to understand how that could be possible. No framework, no context for that. And then finally, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin and I will remember them no more. Interesting to remember the sacrificial system of the Old Testament did not wipe away sin. Animal blood could never fix the issue of sin. It was also not simply a pointless exercise that God wanted his people to do. It was him telling them, even back when he instituted it, well before Jeremiah's time, this is a picture of what's to come, that there's something more to happen. This new covenant, in fact, if we spent a whole nother series or sermon tracing how the new covenant is just underneath everything that's uh, associated with the old covenant, we'd see that this is what God has been working out from the beginning of the day of redemption. From the beginning, it has all been leading to this. So when Jesus says in this tiny little line back in Matthew, this is the new covenant which is shed for many, this carries an entire weight of Old Testament theology, of Old Testament framework, of the very identity of the people of God. And what he's saying is, I am instituting this new covenant. If you remember back to what you know about how covenants were uh, instituted in the Old Testament or in ancient times, it's pretty common among cultures, what was required 
to make a covenant with someone. What did God routinely do when he made a covenant with someone? And specifically think of Genesis 15, if you remember, his covenant with Abraham. Blood sacrifice was required for the most sacred and important of covenants. And if you remember back in Genesis 15, when God takes Abraham and he says, Abraham, we're going to make this covenant. I'd already made a covenant promise to him before in 12. And now he says, we're going to institute this officially. And what's the picture that you see? There's Abraham takes all these animals, right? And he cuts them in half. And they make this, it's called the blood path. And he puts the halves on each side of this path. And you're to walk through. And you symbolize what you say is, I walk through this path, through this blood path. And if I don't keep my end, this can be done to me. And what's shocking, which should be shocking and revolutionary about the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 is who's the first to walk through the blood path? It's God. That's not normal. The one with the power in the covenant making ceremony, they're not expected to walk through that path. The weaker party is expected to make this promise. At least make it first. Yet God walks through and he says, Abraham, I make this covenant with you. And in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says, here's the institution, the official institution of this sacred new covenant. And it's through Jesus's blood. He'd been saying, we're going to talk about this in a little bit here. He'd been saying he was going to die. And you know how Peter reacted to that and, 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 uh, and it didn't go over very well. And there was maybe this nagging in the back of the disciples' minds and hearts saying, is, is, this really gonna, is he really going to die? Isn't he the Messiah? Isn't he the one? We've seen so many things now. We've dedicated our lives to this man. Isn't he the one that's coming to set up the new kingdom? And Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And right here, he's telling them exactly why he's making a covenant, a new covenant. It's being instituted, one that was promised long ago. And so Matthew dedicates a small portion, I mean, compared to some of the other gospels, especially John, that last dinner is chapters long. And in Matthew, it's just really a few verses but that's because he gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying when he's instituting the remembrance of his death, when he's pointing to his death and when he's instituting this new covenant. And so Jesus is the new and better Moses. This is the final thought in the gospel of Matthew on this. If you haven't been convinced till now, that Jesus is the one that God said, I need one to come to crush the head of the snake. And Jesus, Matthew, is putting forth Jesus as the candidate, and Jesus is saying, it's me, because I have the power to institute this new covenant through my own personal sacrifice and the shedding of my own blood. 
Uh, also interesting to note that this is all taking place during the celebration of Passover, which is when Israel was rescued in Exodus from slavery. Interesting to note as well that Moses and the Exodus and the time in Egypt and the time in the wilderness and all of that, that history that we know and we've learned and we've gone over hundreds of times, that is so important to them. They always go back, the Israelites, the disciples, these people Jesus is talking to, they always go back and say, if you can connect to that story, you have something to tell me. It is that important that Jesus is saying exactly what he's saying here. So that's how Jesus is the new Moses, the final and best prophet of God. There's no one that could come after him that could give anything better or new that Jesus has not given because Jesus has instituted that new covenant where God will be with his people, where God's word will be in their hearts, and where he will forgive their sins. They will not simply just be covered, but there is blood that can actually forgive them. That's Matthew 26. Matthew 27, I think, I would argue, is where Matthew says this is how Jesus proves he is the true king. The true king. His display of power is not going to be the overthrow of the Roman Empire. His display of power is not going to be the expansion of Israel's borders. His display of power, of his royalty, of his control, is not coming in any way that people expect it to. But it is coming in a way that was prophesied back in the Old Testament. A way that for some reason, was either not understood or just not wanted. But Jesus' true kingly power is on display in Matthew 27, especially connected, as we read earlier, to Isaiah 53. But that, let's look at that. Uh, Matthew 27, verses 11 through 14. We're going to just skip around a little bit here. I want you to notice this. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. So Jesus is on trial. Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus answered him not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. This is kind of famous about the trial of Jesus, right? This silence. Jesus is silent. Interesting that when the governor asks him, he says, yes, I am the king. But when those chief priests and elders accuse him, he says, Nothing. This is, I think, a true display of real power. The king is in complete control of everything that's going on. In no way is he compelled to debate, 
to argue, to defend. He's the king, and no matter what they say or do, it does not change this fact. And Jesus is doing and experiencing and traveling exactly where he means to. And in that silence, I think that screams of his true power. And they could not see, but it was so astounding that Pilate even looked at that and said, I can't believe what you're doing. He marveled greatly. Jesus, the king, displays his true power in his silence as he heads towards the cross. Look at verse 29. When they had twisted a crown, of, I mean, they get it. <laughs> in their own twisted way, they get it, who he is. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. What they think is their best shot at degrading and humiliating the king in their minds. Jesus does nothing to stop them. Not one thing. He allows people he created to treat him that way. In the face of the Roman Empire, in the face of this Roman army and this Roman legion, it looks like he has no power. It looks like he is nothing. And everybody there watching is saying, yeah, see, we're in charge. We do what we want. And they don't have any clue that they're simply fulfilling the king's decree to shed his blood for a new covenant for them and for us. In his patience and in his suffering, which he said all along, that's what my kingdom's about. The king is displaying his power. Then if we turn to verse 37, it says this, and they, this is after he's been nailed to the cross, they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then drop down to verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Even in the midst of his execution, the pr chief priests tell us exactly what they think a kingly display of power would be. And what do they say? 
Well, here's how I'll know he's the king. If he gets up and comes off that cross. If he saves himself. What a delusional view of true power. They have no idea that if Jesus got off that cross, what that would actually mean. And in the upside-down definitions and world of God's kingdom, the true king's power is displayed in his willingness to suffer and die, to not leave that cross, to let all of this happen to him. If you weren't sure that Jesus was the king. I mean, in the grand scheme of ancient Israelite history, the greatest king they could think of was David, a warrior like no other, a symbol of power and authority, a man after God's own heart. I mean, his legend is incredible, right? From uh, a boy, a shepherd boy, he's defeating bears and lions. He fights giants. He goes on the run from Saul. And even in David's own story, they're sprinkled out, sprinkled through. Maybe what is the true display of real power? Because I think of how much stronger David had to be when those two times he ran into Saul in the wilderness, right? And everybody said, kill him. Kill him. Take the throne. Quit running away. Quit hiding out. Quit waiting for God. And David's, I mean, I, I imagine when Saul got back <laughs> after living and he looks and he goes, well, this was ridiculous. Why would he do this? I wouldn't have done this. Instead of doing that, David displays true godly power and authority in mercy and grace. And that upside down kingdom is all throughout the Old Testament, just like it's in the new. And Jesus shows his power through his death and through his resurrection. But first, and importantly, through what he allows people to do. And so if you're reading this and you're not convinced of who Jesus is and you're looking at that, you might stop right here in the story and look up and say, Matthew, buddy, the hero of the story is dead. This is a terrible story. <laughs> you want me to believe that Jesus is this great thing, this great person, this fulfillment of all the Old Testament, but he's dead? And what looks like failure, Matthew is going to point out, this isn't failure. This has been the plan all along. Remember Isaiah 53? If whoever was reading it said that to Matthew, I imagine Matthew would go back and, well, let's look at Isaiah 53 real quick. What does it say the king is going to do? Suffer? Redeem? And that's going to show God's love. We read it earlier, but it starts, it's pretty bleak for most of that chapter. 
until you get to the final few verses where it says this is all leading to the reconciliation of sinners to God and the gift of righteousness to those who are in need. And so what looks like a colossal failure and what the disciples for a little while afterwards thought was the worst thing that could have happened, the end of what they had been working for, turns out it was the institution of the new covenant leading to victory in Jesus. And finally in Matthew 28, Matthew points out this final thing. He ends this, this, this thread on one more note. Jesus is the new Moses. He has the power to speak the new covenant and to enact the new covenant. He has the authority to do that. Jesus is the true king. He has all power, but his power is displayed through weakness and sacrifice, which really leads to victory and does not lead to defeat. And Jesus is also the final thing that Matthew's been pointing to this whole time, maybe even greater than these other things, is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Back in Matthew uh, chapter 1, we read in uh, verse 22, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This ties just a few sentences at the very beginning of the letter, or of the gospel, I'm sorry, are finally finished here in Matthew 28. Uh, Listen to verse 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel said, answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. There's an interesting twist on Matthew's methodology here in Matthew 28. What he's done from the beginning is he has asked the reader or the listener to think back to the Old Testament and connect where uh, God's prophets had said, this is what to expect from the Messiah. Here's what to expect from the one coming. Here's how you'll know the promises fulfilled and, and who it's been about this whole time. And, and he routinely quotes Old Testament prophecies in scripture and calls back. But something interesting here is that in the Old Testament, There certainly is no explicit prophecy of the resurrection 
and there are very few, if any, allusions to it. The resurrection was not something they knew they could look back and say, I actually, okay, I see it now. The coming one is supposed to die. But they could not look back and say for any certainty, well, there's a resurrection associated with that as well. Now, do they have concepts of resurrection? Absolutely. Did they believe in some sort of res resurrection? Yes. But they did not have any sort of prophecy to look back and say, well, the Messiah will be raised. I can understand that that's going to happen. And what's interesting is, Matthew says, here's how you can trust that Jesus is God. Because the angel points out this very important fact in verse 6. Jesus isn't here. Jesus is risen as Jesus said. And there's three occasions in Matthew. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, and 23, and 2019, where Jesus makes his own prophecy. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to know if a prophet was truly speaking on behalf of God and working within God's power, if they made a prophecy, it would have to come true. And what Matthew is saying here, what he points out, what the angel is saying here, is that Jesus is God. He works with the power of God because he made a prophecy. Three times he said, I will die and I will rise again. Now you know that's true. Now you know that's happened. Now you know who I am. Jesus is saying, I'm a new and final prophet. I speak on behalf of God. And not only that, I am God. And here's where he tries to drive that home. Look at um, verse 9 and 10. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus's first word to them is that Matthew records, rejoice. This has to be the heaviest, most meaningful rejoice that has been spoken in the words of scripture. What do they need to rejoice about? Okay, Jesus is alive, if, unless he's a ghost and we're seeing things. Jesus is alive, and what he's saying is, that new covenant that I gave my blood for, it's instituted. It's here. God has forgiven your sin. How's he done that? Me. God has joined you to himself. How's he done that? Me. God has come to you. How's he done that? Me. It, it, it is abundantly clear, if you can see it, that Jesus is not saying, I'm just another prophet. I'm just the next guy to carry on and, and try to meet the requirements of the law or try to fix what's gone wrong. He's saying, I have the authority to give the word of the Lord. I have the power to rule my kingdom. 
and I am God with you. So Matthew uh, implicitly or begs the question, what will we do with this Jesus? Those who would have read this gospel had to say, what will I do with this Jesus? This guy who was just a carpenter from Nazareth, who kind of created a lot of buzz, got the Romans involved, made a big noise, but nothing's changed that much around me. Rome's still Rome. I don't see the throne being held by anybody. And that's kind of the point of this gospel, isn't it? That that's not the kingdom that the king came to initiate. And that's not the kingdom that the king invites you and I in to be part of, and not just be part of it, but to be ambassadors and uh, expanders of. Because he ends his gospel with Jesus' last words to his friends, go and make disciples. Go and bring others into the kingdom and expand the borders. You have a royal decree from the all-powerful king. And the question is, what will we do? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you are God with us, that you're our king, and that you connect us to the God. Father, I pray that um, as we every day look at the beauty of Jesus, that we would never grow old, that we would continually be encouraged and replenished in our spirits and our hearts by just who Jesus really is. And Father, I pray that as you show us how we can go and make disciples, how we can be part of this ever-growing, ever-living kingdom. Father, may we look like Jesus. May we reflect him to those who we're inviting in. May they see him and we be just a small help in connecting others to the true king, to Emmanuel. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.